Do you ever wish you could create for yourself the well-presented visual content that some people add into all of their social media posts, the catchy graphics or the ace background, but you think, but I wouldn't know where to start? Well, of course you do, for there isn't a better place to start than Canva for Teams, which helps you and your team collaborate and design the slickest content from your simple but standout social media backgrounds and posts to the best business documents and presentations that you'll see. With my own show, though I find it impressive, the artwork and the jazz is very much secondary to the writing and broadcasting side of things. I find that quite complex and daunting looking. Well, I did anyway, for through messing about with Canva for Teams, I now see how simply you can do it because there's as much there to help you as there is to captivate you. Personally, I think the templates for your Instagram posts and the Facebook adding effect Canva has are proper back of the net. But that's merely the tip of the iceberg. You've got Canva whiteboards and Canva docs, giving you and your team the space you need to be able to brainstorm for your best results. Canva presentations, which will take your presentations up to that next level, or Canva print. So all of these inspired designs that you make, you can bring to life on anything, from posters to mugs, all printed planet-friendly. Just have a play with it, you'll find no end of great stuff there. Plus, with features such as Magic Design, whereby simply uploading an image, you can watch as a collection of unique templates appear that you can customize to your own liking or just finish with a few personal touches. Or Magic Write, where if you're suffering that dreaded writer's block, then you simply enter a prompt into and it generates a first draft for you. Boom. You'll find Canva, its countless premium fonts and graphics, and its free library of videos and pictures at your disposal, loaded with all you need to make the best creations you can, supporting, and perhaps even suggesting, your creative process each step of the way. Design and collaborate with Canva for Teams. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you go to canva.me slash TCE. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash T-C-E for a free 45-day extended trial. Canva dot me slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Your regular slice of, of a tale of true crime that are more often than not the unfamiliar, the long forgotten, but no less important that I scour the UK and Ireland and its darkest corners to bring to you. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. I am accompanied as ever by my beloved black and white menace, Pixie, the true crime enthusiast cat. And we're completed by yourselves, the enthusiasts that the show is for, simple as. It is as wonderful as always having you join us today, which I thank you kindly for. And I hope that as you have then it's for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So, for the tale I've researched and accounted this time around, we head back to 2009 and down to the South Wales city of Swansea, for a tale that is nothing short of tragic and senseless. It's one that highlights what can happen when you head down the wrong path in life, though not always of your own doing, and the devastating ripples that a single senseless action can cause for others. In fact, that was almost the title of the episode that was, Ripples. However, I've opted to name it differently, and I hope the title becomes self-explanatory 
as the episode progresses. The episode contains details and descriptions of crime and events, including descriptions of injury detail that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled A Tale of Two Sisters. So, to begin the account, I start first with a heartwarming extract from Full House magazine, as was printed back in March 2010, which is one of those UK coffee time magazines that are filled with fiction and puzzles and all genre of real life stories. This one concerning a couple for whom it was almost love at first sight. As Kirsty giggled down the phone to our reporter back in March 2009, she admitted it hadn't been the most romantic of starts when she met Paul. Drunk at her mate Chris's party, she'd had a one-night stand and, embarrassed afterwards, crept out, unable to look at the bloke who was still snoring peacefully in bed. Kirsty, 24, confessed to full house. My head was killing me. I just got up and left him, dashing home. I wanted to forget all about it. I was moving in a week to be a hairdresser in a new town. Leaving her moment of madness behind, over the next couple of years, she made a fresh start with new friends, including a woman named Vicky Grabham. Kirsty went on. Vicky told me she had a brother. She dialed his number and handed me the phone. I wondered what the hell she was doing. But the pair got on like a house on fire and swapped numbers then sent each other photos, and Kirsty liked what she saw. I fancied him. He was tall, dark and handsome, and he made me laugh. I knew I liked him, and I wanted to be with him. On their first date, Kirsty went around to Paul's house, and was bowled over. It was amazing, she said. I spent all day with him, and stayed a few more days. Two weeks later, they were snuggled up on the sofa, and when Paul mentioned his mate Chris and a party he'd been to a few years before, suddenly everything fell into place. Paul jumped up saying, Oh my God, it's you, recalled Kirsty. She cringed, knowing that the man she was falling for was her one-night stand. But to save her blushes, he told me it must be fate, she said. When Paul proposed just three weeks later, she was overjoyed. Some friends and family had reservations though. I told mum and she told me not to be stupid, said Kirsty. But I didn't mind. I knew she would come round and she did. Even Vicky was shocked, according to Kirsty. She said, you can't get married, that's crazy. But there was no stopping us. And it seemed their romance couldn't be more perfect. There, on the coffee table, the local paper was open on a page about wedding planners, said Kirsty. I told Paul it really was meant to be. Four weeks after the proposal, they married. Kirsty's mum, Catherine Broomfield, put aside any reservations and helped with a car and honeymoon suite, and the night before, Kirsty had no second thoughts. I sent Paul a text telling him I loved him, she said. I was so nervous, waiting for something to go wrong, 
like it was too good to be true. Instead, on the day, all she could think was how lucky she was. He looked gorgeous and he made a really lovely speech, she said. My wedding day was the best day of my life. I wouldn't change it for the world. Life's too short for regrets. Approaching their first wedding anniversary in March 2009, they celebrated by telling their story to Full House and concluded it by saying how Kirsty had decided she'd like to start a family. Now I'm sure we've each read several of these type of coffee time accounts previously, haven't we? And sometimes, interspersed with the truth, it has to be said that there is a certain amount of artistic license with these also. Just bear that in mind. The Kirsty in question was Kirsty Leanne Wilkinson, the youngest of three daughters born to then Catherine Wilkinson, now Broomfield, on June the 19th, 1984, in Coventry in the West Midlands. She was the second daughter born at a Catherine's second marriage, Kirsty already having an elder half sister, Sonia, and an elder sister, Haley, and up until their early teens, with Sonia having left home and settled with her boyfriend. It was just Catherine and the two girls, their father Fred having left the family when the girls were young, as in many situations he was a mentally abusive tyrant, and some families are better off without that in their lives from the off. Perhaps as a result of this, perhaps due to the closeness in their ages, the two sisters, though described as chalk and cheese, the difference in the two, one was constructive, the other destructive, was a celebrated family joke, were undeniably close. Catherine recalled. Haley was only 16 months older than Kirsty, so when they were growing up, they were dressed the same, they were in the same buggy, and everybody used to ask if they were twins. As they grew, they each even had affectionate lifelong nicknames for each other. Haley was known as Ginge because of the slight reddish tint to her hair, whilst Kirsty was known as Stig because of her constant wild and messy hair, a bit of a nod to a celebrated 1963 children's book, Stig of the Dump, one I'm sure many listening will remember reading. Whilst Haley was more the academic, the accomplished self-taught musician, the fashionista whose tastes change with the wind, Kirsty was more the typical girly girl. She loved pink, she loved fashion and makeup, yet was a gentle, kind-hearted charity giver and massive animal lover. But constantly, no one was closer to each than the other. They were even to have matching star tattoos on each other's wrists. Catherine eventually met the man who was to become her third husband, David Broomfield, and both of the girls took to him in an instant. It was a mutual love, and pretty soon he'd earned the honour of each calling him dad, which he loved and treated both as his own daughters. The best dads do that sometimes, I tell you. They'd lived around the Stockton Road, Hillfields and Beresford Avenue, Folds Hill areas of Coventry in the West Midlands, before when Kirsty was about 12, the family had moved to South Wales for a fresh start, where leaving behind their friends only made the two sisters even closer. By 1998, the family had moved in a house swap to the Bridge End area of South Wales, where Haley had met a partner, John. 
Now this relationship had resulted in Haley falling pregnant at age 17 and moving up to Wrexham, where she gave birth to a daughter, Megan Eve. Though sadly, the relationship didn't last and John's parents took Megan to live with them in the golf club that they ran in Chester. Haley becoming estranged from her after this. Not wanting to go back to her family after this, Haley moved around the country for a bit, living periodically in Bristol, Northampton, London, before returning back to South Wales in 2001 for a time, and then going back to Coventry to be near to Sonia and her children, where she settled for a while. Kirsty, meanwhile, had remained in Bridgend, and remained the family's Pink Princess, as she was known, with one very real goal, to become like her idol, Katie Price, who was then known as Jordan, Catherine recalled. Kirsty had ambitions to be a model. She wanted to be like Jordan, and she had sent photos off to magazines to try to get them published. Indeed, Kirsty was gifted with everything needed to be a success in this. The several published pictures of her show a strikingly attractive young woman, and reportedly she had some success at this, making good money as a glamour model. It was soon enough for her to move to Swansea with her then-boyfriend, Johnny, to give up her brief foray into the profession of hairdressing for good, and by the time she was 22, to have obtained her own flat. Good going at such a young age. So, you could say, life was pretty good for Kirsty. It was all the more surprising then, when out of the blue in January 2008, when Catherine had just got back from a holiday in Turkey, Kirsty rang her and told her she was marrying, not her long-term boyfriend Johnny, as Catherine would have expected, but instead, having split from Johnny, was marrying a 24-year-old named Paul William Grabham, who came from Cornelly near Bridgend, and whom she explained she had had a one-night stand with some years before, and whom she'd met again by chance, it being a total whirlwind, total love at first sight, and who by that time had moved in with her. The headstrong girl could not be dissuaded by her apprehensive mother coaxing her to wait for a while, six months at least, to make sure, and the wedding was set for just five weeks later, on February the 16th. Before that though, Kirsty had brought her husband-to-be around to meet her mum and dad, who were less than thrilled with what they saw, Catherine later describing a tall, dirty, scruffy-looking individual filled with tattoos, piercings and bad teeth and with little prospects. He had no job at the time, though claimed to have, by age 24, worked at more professions than Frank Spencer and the Incredible Hulk combined and let drop that at least one of these had been a stripper, something I'm sure every parent looks for in their prospective son or daughter-in-law, isn't it? Kirsty's mother was opposed to the union from the start, saying, he wouldn't leave her alone, he was kissing and cuddling her all the time in my company, I even told them to get a room. Both of Kirsty's sisters were less than impressed too. Yet, Seeing how clearly happy their beloved Kirsty was, they forced themselves to come around to the idea, and Catherine and David helped with the wedding arrangements, taking Kirsty for her wedding dress, 
and even for a surprise organising a pink limousine to take her to the venue on the day. Grabham's extensive contribution, meanwhile, was to get Kirsty's name tattooed on his neck and some new sparkly earrings, and to just turn up on the day to marry her. The apple seemingly didn't fall far from the tree either, as more than one member of Kirsty's family thought to themselves at the wedding, a sentiment they later shared with one another. It's like something out of bloody shameless, this lot. Now this is where the artistic license in the full house article I read first comes in, because this marriage was, as you can probably hazard a guess at, far removed from the fairy tale that Kirsty had described. I shall come on to explain it a bit more as the tale progresses. But the first signs of Kirsty's family being proved right about Grabham came in June of that year, when he and Kirsty had gone to Coventry to attend a family christening. There, a drunken Grabham had started a furious row with Kirsty, calling her all manner of abusive names, though it's stopping short of him physically attacking her. It was here, however, that Catherine learned that a few weeks before this, Kirsty and Grabham had attended a party where he had drunkenly tried to strangle her, sitting on his stomach and choking her so forcefully that she'd lost bladder control. With David understandably wanting to marmalise him, they'd eventually merely banned him from their house, though were to relent upon this when it became apparent that no Grabham also meant no seeing the daughter that they loved so dearly. There were other instances too over that year. Catherine discovered that Grabham had used their address without their knowledge to take out a loan he had then neglected to repay, though he denied this. And Kirsty remained with him even after it emerged that he cheated on her with a woman that he'd met online. One of his numerous online activities, as we shall see shortly. She kept forgiving him for various things like this, but by Christmas 2008, Kirsty had finally told her family that she'd had enough and that she was going to leave him for good, which pleased them. It seemed that she'd finally come to her senses. Yet, Kirsty relented once again, and to her family's dismay, decided to give Grabham another chance. Catherine recalled, I told her once and for all to leave him, for he would never change. And she said, Mum, I'm married, I've got to make a go of it. Another couple of months passed, with nothing changing for the worse, nor for the better though, and her family's concern and worry increasing. And then on Mother's Day 2009, the 22nd, Kirsty came to visit her family, looking downbeat and dowdy, totally not herself having lost a sparkle, Catherine described. She left both her mum and dad some gifts, and after nervously watching the window, and not having been there long at all, Grabham was outside beeping the horn, back to pick her up in the couple's blue Suzuki jeep. As Catherine watched her leave, she wasn't to realise it would be the last time she was ever to see her daughter alive. Kirsty and Catherine maintained a constant relationship, in touch each day, be it by phone or text or Facebook message, and as that week continued, the messages between the two were constant. Kirsty once again even expressed that she was considering leaving Grabham for good 
and heading back to the Coventry area where she could be near her beloved sisters, to which Catherine and David once again threw their full support behind. It's horrible seeing someone you love stuck in something so toxic sounding. I'm sure that can resonate with a lot of us. By that Friday evening, the 27th, Catherine had told Kirsty she was heading out to bingo that evening, whilst Kirsty had arranged to go for a night out in Swansea with friends. And as Kirsty herself had recently had a few wins on the bingo, nothing life-changing, but enough for some new clothes and shoes, those kind of wins, she sent her mum a message saying, Do you want some of my luck? This was to be the final message Catherine ever received from her youngest daughter. Sure enough, that evening Kirsty had gone on a night out in the city with a couple of friends, Lisa Oliver, and someone she'd only just met properly that evening, Paloma de Toro Foley. But, and whether it had been prearranged or whether he'd simply invited himself, Paul Grabham went with her than beginning the night at a bar called La Tosca's. Friends who knew both knew that their relationship was a somewhat volatile one, than being one of these couples who isn't afraid or ashamed to have a public row, you know. And sure enough, by the time they'd got to the city centre play nightclub, a row had begun. So intoxicated was Grabham, and having done an amount of cocaine that evening also, He'd knocked a full table of drinks over, and following the row, he had left the venue, with Kirsty remaining there with her friends. Mrs. De Toro Foley and Kirsty had immediately hit it off, and in the early hours of the 28th of March, had all gone back to Lisa's house in Danagraig Road, in the Port Tenant area of Swansea. In fact, so much had they hit it off, that Kirsty was soon confiding in a new friend about her marital problems describing numerous incidents to her, including the episode where he tried to strangle her some months before, as I mentioned earlier, and another occasion where the couple were at a party in a friend's and had gotten into a violent argument after both had taken drugs. Grabham was then seen to hold his wife off the ground with one hand around her throat as he jammed her against the front door, leaving friends having to pull him off her, and one friend so frightened that Kirsty would be killed that she pleaded with her husband to let her go. Paloma later told BBC Wales. He eventually let her go because I think he realised what he'd done to her, but she said she was so scared at that point, she'd seen his true colours and realised what he was like. She was also saying about him cheating on her. She said he cheated on her five times, and each time she'd taken him back and found him on these websites, porn websites and things. And she said, I don't know how much more of this I can take until I walk away, because it's just crushing me now. Lisa Oliver added, She talked to me, not on the night, but in general. She talked about Paul, about him being unfaithful. She told me he was a husband, and that's that. She's got to give it a go. I told her she could do better than him, but at the end of the day, she said she was married to him, and that was all that mattered. Paloma explained how she had tried to persuade a new friend to stay at Lisa's home that night, and allowed the dust to settle on the argument with her husband in the club, continuing. I couldn't talk her round. She was adamant she wanted to go home, 
so I phoned a taxi for her. The taxi came within about 10 minutes. It was across the road, we were still in the kitchen, and I wrote my name and number on a piece of paper for her. I said, phone me or text me as soon as you get in, just to make sure you're alright. Kirsty had then left, and about 15 minutes later, by now long past 4am that Saturday morning, Paloma received a text message saying, Paul is in the living room laying on the sofa, but I got home safe. As the weekend progressed, Catherine wasn't unduly worried not to hear from Kirsty on the Saturday, but was surprised by the Sunday coming and passing with nothing, and by Monday morning, the concern she and David felt turned to downright alarm when Grabham called her that morning, asking her if Kirsty was with her. He explained she hadn't come home that Saturday morning, he'd not seen her, and he considered she'd gone off with friends for the weekend, something she was in the habit of doing, and had done so as recently as a week or so before. However, he told Catherine that over the weekend, he had noticed that Kirsty had ironed and taken some clothes of hers which were missing, her toothbrush, her beloved pink hair straighteners, though no hairbrush, and £160 in cash from the computer desk, though had left a debit card behind. Catherine was immediately ringing Kirsty, but to no answer, and was then texting, Facebook messaging her, as were her sisters too, but all to no answer. Later that day, Catherine had reported her as a missing person to police, as also had Paul Grabham, and officers went around to speak to each of them, them sharing her concerns. By that Wednesday, needing to do something and unable to sit around helpless, Catherine had even placed an advert in the local newspaper asking for anyone who had seen Kirsty or had any information about her to let police know she was safe and well. As I've said countless times before in tales such as this, it must be unimaginable such a situation, for you'd want to be out combing the streets doing anything, the littlest thing that you could, wouldn't you? In an interview with the South Wales Evening Post the following day, Catherine spoke of her deep concern at the length of time her daughter had by then been missing, saying, She would phone me every day without fail, because she knew I would worry otherwise. I just want her back. It is completely out of character for her to vanish like this. When we spoke on the Friday, she sounded fine. There was nothing out of the ordinary. I'm just devastated. I cannot believe that she's been gone so long. Now, South Wales Police had launched a major missing persons hunt in the wake of Kirsty's disappearance as concern for her well-being increased, run from Cockett Police Station. But by the Thursday after Kirsty had disappeared, the investigation had been upgraded dramatically, with Detective Superintendent Paul Burke telling the press, Although we very much hope that Kirsty is still alive, due to the circumstances of her going missing, we are now treating her disappearance as a murder inquiry. There were to be further developments for Kirsty's family that Thursday also, because it was in the early evening that Detective Neil Jones, the officer who had led the investigation before it had been accelerated, and another officer, who was to become the family's liaison officer, John Quinn, broke the news to them that Kirsty's husband, Paul Grabham, 
had that evening been arrested on suspicion of her murder. Again, as we've said so many times, the longer a person is missing, does a family continue to hold out to that fading hope that they really are still out there, safe but remaining anonymous for whatever reason of their own choosing, because it's easier than face the inevitability that they aren't, because that's like giving up on them and accepting a nightmare coming true, the last thing that you'd want to believe. It's so very sad, and again, unimaginable, your heart just goes out, doesn't it? For as soon as Paul Grabham had reported his wife as missing to police, detectives had suspected him. Then Detective Chief Inspector Dorian Lloyd explained, The case was brought to us by Paul Grabham himself, who reported his wife as a missing person, but we were unhappy with the account Mr Grabham gave us, and challenged that account. As a result of that process, we felt that something more sinister had happened to Kirsty. That was to be confirmed on Monday the 6th of April, 10 days after Kirsty had last been seen, when a spokesperson for South Wales Police issued the following statement. Officers in Swansea investigating the suspected murder of 24-year-old Kirsty Grabham have discovered what is believed to be a body of a woman in the Lailston area of Bridge End. The body has not yet been formally identified and the coroner has been informed. A trained family liaison officer is supporting the family. A lorry driver, Julian Bristow, had earlier that day stopped in a lay-by on the M4 motorway near Kevin Cribbour, close to Lailston near Bridge End, and while stretching his legs, had spotted a new bulky-looking suitcase lying in the undergrowth off a lane which the motorway passed over. He described later how he'd investigated and partially opened it and saw what looked like a hand with a gold ring on the wedding finger, which he initially thought must have been a mannequin. It's never a mannequin though, sadly, is it? Which Mr Bristow had realised once he'd opened it further and saw a mass of matted hair belonging to the blood-soaked body of the woman inside. Police were immediately called to the scene and cordoned the area off, and sadly, it didn't take them too long to cursorily identify the woman, thanks to the travel label with Kirsty's name on, attached to the outside of the suitcase. Kirsty's body had been found. Tragically, Kirsty's two sisters, equally unable to sit at home in Coventry doing nothing, were shortly afterwards making their way over to South Wales to gather and show support for their family and had unknowingly driven past the by then cordoned off spot, noting but not associating the police activity with their missing sister. It's terrible, isn't it? When Paul Grabham, who by that time had been in custody for four days, was told of the discovery, he didn't express any kind of emotion as you think someone would had your spouse's body just been discovered. He simply shrugged as if to say, so what? This was the most police could get out of Grabham, aside from one-word answers to questions put to him, such as what, when, but most frequently, no comment. On the opposite end of the emotional scale, Catherine described later what must have been an unimaginable time, how she'd physically collapsed, broken, 
when police broke the news of the discovery of a woman's body they suspected to be Kirsty, and how she, David, Sonia and Haley had to identify Kirsty's body in the mortuary at Heath Hospital in Cardiff the following day, saying, For ten days we were in limbo. Paul was arrested, but I couldn't accept that Kirsty was dead. With no body, I had to believe she would come home. But on the tenth day, the police told us that a body of a young woman had been found, and I just screamed hysterically. When they found Kirsty, her body was still warm. Rigor mortis hadn't even set in. I'm thinking, was she still alive in that suitcase? And that's the thing that does go through my head all the time when I go to sleep and wake up. That's what's in my mind. Was she screaming for her mum? It's the stuff of nightmares indeed, isn't it? Recalling how she was taken to the morgue to identify Kirsty, Catherine said, I looked at this girl with a broken nose and jaw, scratches and bruises everywhere, and swollen eye sockets, and I felt genuine pity for this girl's mum. I was ready to leave, but my daughter, Sonia, gently told me it was Kirsty. I felt like the wind had been knocked out of me. I couldn't take in anything anyone was saying to me. I leaned forward and kissed my daughter one last time on the forehead and on her right cheek. I wasn't supposed to touch her, but how could I not say goodbye? Haley, meanwhile, could do nothing except simply moan. Where's my Stig? I want Stig. It's quite heartbreaking now, isn't it? Poor, poor people. There were more things to emerge following this discovery that sent further shockwaves through the family also which I shall come on to shortly. On Wednesday, April 8, 2009, Paul Grabham of Rose Hill Terrace in Swansea appeared at Swansea Magistrates Court charged with the murder of his wife Kirsty in Swansea sometime between Friday, March 27th and Tuesday, April 7th. He was led into the court escorted by officers who had to protect him from a baying crowd consisting of Kirsty's friends and members of the public and didn't speak during the short hearing except to confirm his name before being remanded in further custody to await pre-trial hearing. He appeared before Swansea Crown Court again in September and November of that year where he entered a plea of not guilty and was told following legal submissions that his trial would take place as soon as possible in the new year. In the days that followed Grabham being remanded in custody, an RIP Kirsty page on Facebook swelled to more than 3,000 messages of condolence. Scores of floral tributes and cards were left at the spot where Kirsty had been discovered by a heartbroken friend, and her family even planted a rose bush there in her memory. Of course, a bush of pink roses. The funeral was held on April the 27th at St. James's Church in Pyle, a packed affair that saw mountains of flowers outside the church, police having to close the roads off, and the church so filled that people had spilled out onto the street. Of course, for the family's pink princess, she was dressed in a specially selected pink dress, the hearse carrying Kirsty's coffin to her funeral was decorated with pink and white flowers, spelling out the word princess, 
and her pink coffin, all as was requested in a journal found after Kirsty's death and carried in by six of her friends, each wearing a pink top and black trousers. The coffin bore the famous Playboy Bunny logo. There were tributes galore paid to Kirsty throughout the moving service, conducted by the Reverend Ian Rees, as well as written tributes to her left from her family members. Her elder sister Sonia wrote, Kirsty, I had to break the news to your little niece today. She is heartbroken. I've told her you've gone to heaven. You had a kind heart and was so funny. I'm heartbroken. Kirsty's sobbing sister Haley, meanwhile, released two white doves, unable to put anything into words, ahead of Kirsty being later laid to rest in Cornelly Cemetery. Now, on top of all what you've heard me describe so far, plus other revelations that I shall come on to shortly, and knowing that the man who was supposed to love and protect her daughter almost as equally as a mother does, was awaiting trial accused of murdering her, it simply became too much for Catherine to bear, and early one morning, she arose without waking David, headed to Kirsty's grave in Connelly Cemetery, took an overdose of pills, and lay down with her daughter, willing sleep to overtake her. Fortunately, David had awoken, and realising the grief his wife was suffering, knew instinctively where she would be. A call to emergency services later, and due to their swift action, Catherine was rushed to hospital, where her stomach was pumped, and her life was saved. Perhaps this was the perspective that she needed, because from then on, a solemn promise was made to the remainder of her family that she would never again attempt such a thing, because the living still needed her there. I can completely empathise with Catherine here, because I understand just what grief can do to a person. Something incredibly similar was visited on a very close friend of mine some years ago now, and a loss such as that of a child it has ripples, is all I can say. Paul Grabham came to trial for the murder of Kirsty Grabham at Swansea Crown Court before presiding Mr Justice Butterfield on Tuesday the 12th of January 2010, where Greg Taylor Casey, prosecuting, alleged to the court that Grabham had brutally murdered his wife during a row at their flat in Rosehill Terrace in the Mount Pleasant area of Swansea, ten days before she was found in April of the previous year, an accusation to which Grabham, as I said before, had issued a plea of not guilty. In his opening address to the jury, Mr Taylor outlined how the couple had first met. Now, I opened the tale with an account of hearts and flowers about these two people that had met again years later and love at first sight and meant to be, but I also said that these kind of accounts have somewhat artistic license interspersed with the truth. It is quite possible that they'd had a one-night stand in the past, of sorts, but it wasn't at a party that they'd met. The news had been broken to Catherine and Kirsty's family, even before tragic Kirsty's body had been found, that Kirsty had, aside from glamour modelling, since moving to Swansea years before, also been involved in sex work. She worked out of a massage parlour called Mystique's on Merthamour Road in Bridgend, where she used the working name Megan, and it was here that she'd met Paul Grabham, 
either as a client of hers or as a fellow sex worker because sex work is something he was involved in also. Mr. Taylor told the court. Paul Grabham knew she worked as a prostitute because that is how he met her in a massage parlour. Paul Grabham also offered himself as a prostitute, offering several services to both men and women. He explained how they had set up a joint website offering their services separately or together to both men and women, and how Kirsty would bring male clients back to the flat where Grabham would make himself scarce. They'd continued this and had married, but within months of marrying, Grabham began accessing websites which were used by people looking for casual sex with strangers. He'd opened 10 different accounts on such sites, and although at first the couple accessed the sites together, it could have been simply to view the material displayed, said the prosecution. But by early 2009, Kirsty began telling her friends and relatives that she believed her husband was using the sites simply to meet other women, which had strained their relationship. On this strain in the relationship, Mr. Taylor told the jury, there could have been any number of reasons why. Paul Grabham had been using dogging sites and Kirsty had found out he'd been trying to find a woman. But their relationship was stormy in general. Paul gave the impression that he was possessive often cuddling her. He furthered that they were often heard arguing in the thin-walled flat that they lived in by neighbours who became used to their rows. One row, in the early hours of 28th of March 2009, had gone much too far though, leading to Kirsty's death. It was likely she'd attempted to fight for her life, as was evidenced by the revelation that in the early hours of the Saturday morning, a 999 call had been attempted from the couple's flat, but had been interrupted, before Kirsty had been brutally murdered by the man stood in the dock. Mr. Taylor recounted the injuries that the post-mortem had discovered to Kirsty: the broken nose, broken jaw, scratches and bruises to the face, the catastrophic head injury that Kirsty had succumbed to, and how he had then bundled her into a suitcase following a failed attempt to sever her body in half, had driven to a spot on the M4 some 13 miles away, and had casually tossed the bundle over the side of a motorway bridge, where it had landed and lain on an embankment until it was discovered some 10 days later by a passing motorist. Catherine Broomfield rushed out of court sobbing as she heard details of what the prosecution claimed were her daughter's final moments. They were the standard witnesses at the trial, as I've alluded to before. Lisa Oliver and Palomo de Toro Foley each gave evidence as to the night out before Kirsty was alleged to have died. Julian Bristow told the court of his discovery of the suitcase, and senior crime officer Detective Constable Gary Evans told of the recovery of Kirsty's body, and his belief that the suitcase had ended up in the undergrowth where it was discovered because it had been pushed from the motorway above. The court also heard testimony from Catherine herself, who recounted the various events concerning Grabham and Kirsty, as I've described, and from witnesses who could give testimony to Kirsty's background, including her former partner, Jonathan Draper, who had lived with her before she met and married Grabham, and who told the court she'd been frequently violent to him and often disappeared for days on end without saying where she was going. 
He said they argued regularly and sometimes Kirsty would telephone the police. But on Christmas Day in 2007, they had a final violent domestic and he left her for good. He told the jury at Swansea Crown Court. She regularly went missing once for five days. When she returned, she wouldn't tell him where she'd been, he added. Now, this would seem to be in support of the claim Grabham had made that he'd been asleep and had woken to find Kirsty, her clothes and some belongings missing that Saturday morning. But it also points to someone who was no stranger to having a row that could get physical. And evidence discovered in the couple's flat, plus the testimony of several witnesses, suggested that that was exactly what had happened there in the early hours of that Saturday morning. The jury heard from a friend of the couple, Martin Richards, who said he first met Kirsty Wilkinson, as she was then, back in 2005. He was an amateur photographer and she'd used his services to take erotic pictures of her to send to adult magazines in an attempt to obtain glamour model work. In the coming years, as well as taking more photos of her, he would also drive Kirsty to and from clients when she worked as a sex worker. In February 2008, he even took the photos at the Grabham's wedding. Mr Richards told the court that before she went missing, at the end of March 2009, she had gotten in touch with him, asking him to take her to Coventry, where her family and friends lived, and where she told him she wanted to get away to, because her husband had been cheating on her by meeting women via the internet. Asked what he thought of that, Mr Richards said he was surprised adding, they were in their first year of marriage, and as I looked at it, they were still in the honeymoon period, he told the jury, though he added that he believed the Grabhams had an open relationship, describing them as having a very liberated sexual relationship, in that other people and other couples were involved. Now, in support of what Mr Richards said, the court had already heard how sexually liberated Grabham was earlier in the trial when one witness, Samantha Jenkins, had given evidence to say how on March the 22nd of the previous year, Grabham, whom she'd known for five years but hadn't seen for the previous two, had turned up at her home out of the blue, explaining, he said he just wanted to catch up. Grabham had told Miss Jenkins his wife was called Kirsty but they'd argued and weren't getting along, she told the court. He said she'd smashed his car up and had tried to get him with a knife. He showed me a nick on his finger from where he got the knife off her. Miss Jenkins explained she next saw Grabham when he arrived at her home on March the 26th, saying, He said he and his wife were sorting things out, but I thought this was strange, because he then asked me, to set him up with one of my friends for a one-night stand. He also asked me for a one-night stand. Miss Jenkins rejected both these requests and said it was possible that Grabham was simply joking. She also told the court he'd sent her letters from Swansea Prison whilst he was on remand awaiting trial and one of these, read out by Mr Taylor, contained the following words. It's not as bad as I thought. Just missing my car and sex. You know what I'm like. We're getting the gist of you, yeah. Continuing his evidence, 
Mr. Richards said that Grabham had contacted him on either the 29th or the 30th of March asking him if he'd seen Kirsty, to which he replied that he hadn't. In the subsequent days, Mr. Richards met him at the couple's Swansea flat, where he told the court that he noticed a rug was missing and a section of lounge ceiling appeared to have been freshly painted. Observations which Grabham's defence barrister Chris Clee Casey pointed out during his cross-examination that he had not mentioned either of to police in his original witness statement. The court had then heard from forensic scientist Claire Morse, who detailed how Kirsty's blood had been found on the walls and ceiling of the flat, on a sofa, in the bedroom and on bathroom taps. She told how she believed an effort had been made to clean up some of this blood because diluted stains were found in the hall and on a television screen and spots of Kirsty's blood on part of the lounge ceiling had also been painted over which forensic scientists determined was clearly fresh paint. Miss Morse had also found Kirsty's blood on a neck chain and on a cardigan and jeans belonging to Grabham, which had been taken from the washing machine, though she agreed when the point was raised by Mr. Clee that it was very difficult to say how old the bloodstains were, or whether they were left at the same time. She also agreed there was no forensic evidence to link Grabham to the suitcase in which his wife had been found, and no evidence that it had been transported in the couple's jeep. But, it was certainly established that the flat was a crime scene and aside from the forensic evidence I've just described there was also the testimony of the Grabham's neighbour Byron Williams who lived in the flat directly below the Grabham's who told the court that he heard the couple arguing in the early hours of that Saturday morning because the violent hour-long dispute in their flat had kept him and his partner Kerry Inger awake. Mr. Williams said that the rows between the two were common occurrences, often lasting up to an hour in which objects were thrown and doors slammed, and described how it was almost as soon as Kirsty got home that morning that this latest one began. He told the court that during the row, I thought I heard Kirsty. It was like somebody had a hand over her mouth as she was trying to shout something out. I cannot really describe it. It was like a high-pitched noise. It's like when you watch TV and you can hear someone being strangled. It was like that. I was convinced that it was Kirsty's voice. The more I've thought about it though, it could have been Paul crying. But it was an hysterical thing anyway. It was definitely hysterical, whatever it was. He said after the row, the flat upstairs had gone quiet for a few hours before noise and banging started once again. And he heard something being dragged across the floor of the Grabham's flat above which he described as scraping, brushing and dragging sounds. He said, I was at the end of my tether. I felt like I wanted to go up there and say something because the noise was ridiculous. I'm now very sorry that I didn't do that. I was very ill that night and to be honest with you, I'd heard so many arguments with them, I couldn't see this one being any different. But I could not think that he was killing her up there or that anyone was being killed. There was a lot of banging like there was a lot of drawers being opened and slammed, frantically searching through them. That went on for about an hour. Then I heard something being dragged across the floor. It's a laminated floor and you can hear everything. Kerry Inger, giving evidence, confirmed this, saying, Most of it sounded like furniture being moved, 
I heard a sweeping sound or a hard brush sound. The other noise I heard sounded like a wet object being dragged. You know when you slip on the bath and it makes a squeaking sound? It sounded like that, like something was being dragged. Mr. Klee put it to her that the argument had never happened, a suggestion she dismissed outright. Grabham's trial was halted for the day mid-trial when he was taken to hospital for a broken ankle he had bizarrely sustained whilst exercising during the lunch period. So it was on crutches when he appeared to give his evidence from the dock and where he made it crystal clear that their marriage was no ordinary one. He described Kirsty as a natural flirt, a party animal who gets things going, but added his wife had a history of self-harming, where she would sometimes punch herself in the face or head and cut herself with broken glass or a knife, though he accepted that the wounds were usually superficial with little bleeding. He also revealed that Kirsty could be violent towards him after drinking, sometimes throwing objects at him or hitting him. Grabham explained that they regularly spent up to £1,000 a week on cocaine, both making their money by acting as sex workers and cultivating cannabis plants in their attic, and that Kirsty, who'd been a sex worker since the age of 17, he claimed, had a loyal group of regular male clients who she felt safe with and provided around 80% of their income, whilst he entertained both male and female clients. He said if she had a client at their flat, he would pop to the tanning parlour or generally make himself scarce. And when asked how he felt about the arrangement, he said, That was fine. It was just a regular job the way I looked at it. I was in the sex industry myself. The couple advertised their services on websites called Adult Work and Glamour Finder, regularly looked at dogging sites together to try and pick up strangers for casual sex and Grabham explained that the couple often both used the websites to look for like-minded couples who wanted to engage in swapping. However, Kirsty had been angry with him and forced him to change his ways after she caught him using one of the sites alone. Grabham told Swansea Crown Court he'd been drinking with his wife, along with other friends, in the city centre play night spot on March 28th of the previous year where both had drunk vodka and taken cocaine, and he had also had an ecstasy tablet. Concerning their mutual drug use, Grabham said that he and his wife had made the decision to reduce their cocaine intake to recreational levels at the end of 2008, after deciding to try for a baby. But even with Kirsty's new restraint, he said both had taken at least five lines of cocaine each on the night of the murder. He told jurors he'd returned home to their Mount Pleasant flat, extremely drunk, and had passed out on their three-seater sofa, and that on the following morning in question, after seeing that his wife was not in the flat, he had visited a dogging website. He claimed simply to change his profile details. Though a message from Grabham's user profile to a woman was later found posted at 9.25am, which read, Hi hon. I'm 25 and looking for fun. Grabham continued that he initially believed Kirsty must have stayed with friends, and so went out to do some casual work for a Swansea catering firm called Caterquip. That afternoon, he withdrew money from a cash machine from Kirsty's account, 
and paid for sex with a worker at the Passion Massage Parlour in St. Helens Road in Swansea, which was described in court as a brothel. He said that over the next few days he became increasingly concerned over Kirsty's disappearance as he discovered she was not with friends and it had crossed his mind she had run off with another man when she disappeared. As a result, he had decided that he then would go off with other women too and during the next few days he indeed had sex with two women that he knew. Over the following days, he continued, he started to notice some of the belongings had also disappeared, including a pair of pink hair straighteners, £160 in cash, makeup and some other clothes. And after learning she was not with friends as he suspected, he rang Kirsty's mother, Catherine, to find out if she had heard anything. Mr. Clee said, The suggestion is you were laying false trails. Was that the case? Grabham answered, No, I was concerned about my wife. He said he had officially reported her as missing to police on March the 30th and that when police visited his home after he reported his wife missing, he was as helpful as he could be and didn't hide anything. He told the jury that following his wife's disappearance early on the Saturday morning, he was away from the flat for eight hours on the Sunday visiting family in Bridge End and again on the following Tuesday and Thursday and although police had tracked his movements over the next few days using his mobile phone records, he did not go near the area where Kirsty's body was found. Confronted with the evidence showing her blood on his shoes and jeans, on the walls and ceiling of their home, Grabham said he had no explanation for it. Asked why he had painted over areas of the walls and ceiling stained by his wife's blood, he simply said that he had not. Grabham also denied the prosecution's suggestion that he had bought bleach and toilet rolls from a local shop to clean up the flat, and also denied the motive for calling police a number of times after reporting Kirsty missing was to find out if he was a suspect, explaining during cross-examination by Mr Taylor that he was just curious to find out if police knew anything. He added later that when he was charged with murder, he gave no comment reply solely on the advice of a solicitor. Grabham's barrister, Mr. Clee, asked him, Did you argue with Kirsty when she came in later? The bespectacled defendant, wearing blue jeans and a mauve jumper over a yellow t-shirt with beads around his neck, answered, No, I did not. Did you see Kirsty when she came in? No. Do you know how Kirsty's blood ended up on your boots? I don't. Do you know how her blood came to be on your jeans which were found in the washing machine? No. Did you kill your wife, Mr Grabham? No, I didn't. Presiding Mr Justice Butterfield asked Grabham, You've no idea who killed her then? No, sir, I haven't. When Mr Justice Butterfield asked him if he was inviting the jury to consider the possibility that Kirsty had returned with someone to the flat while he was away, and was killed there by someone else, Grabham replied, It could be, I don't know. In his closing submission, Mr Taylor asked the jury to remember the evidence they had heard from Byron Williams, who lived in the flat below the Grabhams, and made reference to the forensic evidence presented to the jury, saying, There is no doubt that that murder took place in the flat, 
Even the defence concedes that. He told the jury Paul Grabham wanted them to believe that when he got home that night he just crashed out on the sofa. However, he said, You know differently, don't you? She was not killed in a flat by someone else. In turn, Mr. Clee reminded the jury that Kirsty's occupation was a dangerous one, one where she could have been killed by a customer, as she'd previously taken at least one client she'd never met before back to the flat, and asked the jury to consider the possibility Mrs. Grabham was killed much, much later than the prosecution alleged. He also asked them to be careful when considering the evidence they'd heard about a row between the couple, as Mr. Williams had not mentioned it in his initial statements to the police. It was at this point that Catherine Broomfield left the court in tears after shouting at Grabham, I hope you're happy. Using this as an example, Mr. Clee asked the jury to put all their emotions to one side, saying, We are not asking you to like him or approve of him. But he added, if they had any doubts that he had killed his wife, then they must acquit him. On the 4th of February 2010, after a 15-day trial, the jury found Paul Grabham unanimously guilty of murder after taking just five hours to reach their verdict. Upon hearing the word guilty, Kirsty Grabham's friends and family cheered in triumph so loudly that Mr Justice Butterfield angrily threatened to clear the courtroom. Once order had been restored, sentencing Grabham to life imprisonment with a minimum tariff of 19 years before being considered for parole, less the 302 days he had spent on remand, the judge said, You've been convicted of murder. Your actions were cold, callous, calculating and utterly selfish. During this trial, I've looked for the merest flicker of remorse from your eyes or regret from you, but I've seen none. Just over a year after you promised to love and cherish your new bride, you battered and strangled her to death. It was a vicious and sustained attack fueled by drink and drugs you'd taken, and it is without doubt that your intention was to kill her. As if that was not terrible enough, she was not even in death to get the decency and dignity she was without doubt entitled to, for you crammed her bleeding and still warm body into a suitcase and dumped it like so much rubbish into a place where you undoubtedly hoped it would not be found for many years. He then emphasised that the minimum term to be served was not him trying to place a value upon Kirsty's life, which was priceless, but was set at 19 years, increased from the starting point of 15, to take into account his behaviour after the murder. Grabham said nothing to this, and escorted by officers, limped to the holding cells on crutches to await being taken away to begin his sentence. As he was taken away in a prison van, it was attacked and battered by Kirsty's friends and some of her loved ones, baying for Grabham's blood and willing him to burn in hell. Scenes I'm sure you can picture seen many times before. Following the verdict, Catherine Broomfield read aloud a victim impact statement she'd written, saying, I'll never forget the last time I saw Kirsty in the mortuary. I didn't recognise her face because she was so battered and bruised. I only knew it was her because of the shape of her eyebrows and the piercing above her lips. Paul Grabham did all of that, 
but then compounded our grief by making us believe she was still alive. He lied to us over and over and set about to cheapen her death still further by living a playboy lifestyle until his arrest. He denied everything and tried to convince the jury that he'd slept through a break-in gone wrong. It was horrific listening to the evidence. Paul Grabham has not only taken my baby from me, but he's also robbed me of being a grandmother to Kirsty's babies. He's robbed Sonia and Haley of their devoted sister. Speaking of her daughter's by then well-publicised life as a sex worker, Catherine said, Many things have been said in court about Kirsty's working and social life, but I want people to know the person she really was to us. She was a kind, loving, caring person who would do anything for anybody. I remember once after a photo session, she donated the fee to a breast cancer charity, even though she could have done with the money herself. She even gave money to starving children in Africa via direct debit from her bank. That was Kirsty. On the court steps, Catherine then read out a poem previously written to her by her daughter, which reads as follows. A mum is God's love in action. She looks with her heart and feels with her eyes. A mum is a bank where her children deposit all their worries and hurt. A mum is the cement that keeps her family together and her love lasts a lifetime. Underneath it, it said, I love you lots and lots. You are the best mum ever. I don't tell you often enough, but believe me, you truly are. Love, Kirsty. Imagine just how painful something like that must have been to share. Kirsty's sister Sonia added, The day Kirsty died, our hearts died along with her. We never even had the chance to say goodbye. The sentence passed on Paul Grabham is nothing compared to the life sentence imposed on us. Our lives are no longer complete without our pink princess. Detective Superintendent Dorian Lloyd, who had headed the murder investigation, added, During the course of the investigation, which has been a 10-month investigation, we have interviewed hundreds of people, we have obtained over 600 statements, and throughout this whole process, the evidence has pointed at Mr. Grabham at all times. The judge was right, he was really cold, really calculating, and really selfish. Not once in our dealings with him did he show any remorse for the death of his wife. Our thoughts are with Kirsty's family and friends. We hope that this verdict will help the family move forward. I mentioned before that the loss of someone so close to you, a daughter or a sister, has ripples, doesn't it? And it sadly still did, even following Grabham's conviction. Kirsty's sister Haley, arguably the person closest to her, had found it too painful to even attend the trial, heading over to Istanbul for a break throughout its course. Coming back was no fresh start for her. She moved back to the Coventry area and sadly began seeking solace in alcohol to escape the pain of losing her beloved Stig, unable to cope with it. It gradually took its toll upon her, causing her to be in and out of hospital more than two dozen times over the years. And on October the 11th, 2014, after being admitted once again, it was to be one time too many. 
with her mum and her sister beside her, and them having taken Haley's handprints, footprints, and a lock of her hair, after telling both of them that she loved them and holding her mum's hand, at one minute past five in the morning, Haley passed away, aged just 31. She was as much of a victim of Paul Grabham as her sister was. Catherine admitted later. She loved life. She was always giggling and didn't have a bad bone in her body. She was nice to everybody and she never ran anybody down. Haley took people at face value. I struggled so much to make sense of what happened. The grief was overwhelming. Paul Grabham had ripped the heart out of our lovely family. Haley would never have drunk to the extent she did if her little sister had still been there. That's when Haley went downhill. The day Kirsty died, I think Haley died that day as well. The drink took over everything. It stopped her going out. She just sat on her own in her house. Five years of drinking led to her death. She wasn't eating either. She was just drinking. I honestly don't know what I could have done differently. Maybe I'd have locked her in her room. Anything to protect her. I did try to get her help. I tried everything to help her. But Haley marched to her own tune. And she was her own person. She thought she was invincible. She never thought for a second that this would happen. Haley's funeral was held at Canley Crematorium in Coventry on the 17th of October and was attended by dozens of her friends and family, including her daughter Megan Eve, who she hadn't seen for a number of years. Catherine said, She had a lovely turnout for her funeral considering it all happened so quickly. It was beautiful. I asked everybody to wear something purple because it was Haley's favourite colour. She'd been searching for her little girl, and she turned up. It was Haley's dying wish to see a little girl, and she never got that. I want to help people that have drink problems. Maybe they'll look at Haley and see what's happened to her, and seek help. In the years following Kirsty and Haley's deaths, life has changed immeasurably for the Broomfield family. Though Catherine says her feeling of loss is still as strong as ever. In addition to the ever-present grief, she's also found herself with renewed fears about her family's safety. For Catherine is so scared of the prospect of Grabham being released from prison in the near future that she's even considering moving away from Swansea, her home of almost 30 years, explaining. I want him to be moved to another prison. It would make me feel sick just in being around this area. He's not even sorry for what he's done. There's no repentance in him at all. Even though we've been here since 1998, I feel we have to move. He's basically driving us out of our home. But that would mean I'm leaving Kirsty behind on her own in a graveyard. And that's the thing that hurts. Later this year, I'm hoping to add Haley's ashes to Kirsty's grave so that my girls can rest in peace together, because now I believe I'm ready to say goodbye. We're planning on releasing two white doves in a ceremony in honour of both my girls. I really hope that Catherine has, because I think that's what each sister would have wanted, and the best possible tribute to each of them, I really do. Stig and Ginge, together forever. Releasing a book about her loss five years ago, Through a Mother's Tears, 
which I thoroughly recommend you read. It's heart-wrenching, it's honest and emotive, and it's been invaluable in writing this episode. Catherine has spent much of her time since helping other vulnerable people in abusive relationships who have felt they could reach out to her. Because she's so vocal on the issue, Catherine has found that people in vulnerable situations across the UK reach out to her as a person they hope will be able to understand. She explained back in 2021, I've been trying to forget my grief and help other people with theirs. And about six years ago, I got one woman to leave her violent, abusive husband. I explained what happened to Kirsty and what could happen to her if he was violent like that. And she did, in the end, decide to leave him and went into a women's refuge. And now she's got a beautiful house in a beautiful place and her and her children have never been so happy. She keeps sending me messages saying, thank you so much, you don't know what you've done. Catherine added, the main message I want to send out is that abusive relationships are so dangerous. I want women to spot the signs and leave as quickly as they can. It doesn't make Kirsty's death any less important, but if I can stop anybody else from ending up like Kirsty, then it is worth it. Contained in the episode show notes are a list of contact details for organisations that can help too. And as I've said before in similar instances, please never think you're alone. There is always someone there to help. There really is an ear out there. Such a terribly sad tale, this one. Don't get me wrong, the majority that we feature on the show are, but this one especially is, isn't it? I don't want to waste any time on the parasite that is Paul Grabham. He is exactly where he deserves to be, hopefully for longer than his minimal tariff too, so he gets chance to reflect on the ripples that his selfish, horrific actions caused. I recommend thoroughly, as I said a moment ago, reading Catherine's book. A link to it is in the references section of the episode show notes, and I defy it not to move you. There's plenty within it I haven't brought here. As I said, it's brutally honest and incredibly emotive. I have nothing but empathy and admiration for people like Catherine, for I know all of Kirsty and Haley's family still feels their loss, one that will be never anything but painful for them. But to be spurred on to try and help other people from the grief that you felt, to try and get a chink of light from any darkness, I find her an amazing woman. I also found it a lovely tribute to Kirsty that a friend of Catherine's from Nairobi has earmarked a plot of land that she and her husband own there for a community project, a refuge or a school for those who need it. I think that's something that Kirsty would have loved. There are photographs of predominantly both Kirsty and Haley up shortly in the show's Instagram page, where you can see each in happier times, times that I hope you could envisage them in, and times I'm sure Catherine does take some fond memories from. And yet, it's a double-edged sword that, because looking at something that makes you so happy, must be the most painful reminder possible of what you've lost. My heart goes out to all of Kirsty's family, and if this episode should filter back to any of them, then I pay you my utmost respects. Hope I've done your girl's tale proud, and made them remembered for the people they were, the sisters who are now together again. 
I would welcome, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback on the episode A Tale of Two Sisters, which you can do so in the episode thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or if you wish, through any of the show's social media links, you're always welcome to get in touch wherever you want to. With that, it is wrap-up time here, and all that remains for me to say is that I thank you for joining me in the MOG today, and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.